glad you're here to join us at Waterstone. Throughout 2020, we have been reading through the Bible, and it has culminated to this moment where we open up the New Testament and see how God enters history in a personal way. It makes it unmistakably clear that He is with us, He is relentlessly on our side, and doing everything possible to rescue us. It's through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we learn how to live and be people who love sacrificially, seek justice, and extend God's mercy. We're excited to dive into this series together and would enjoy it even more if you were able to attend one of our services in person. We invite you to go to waterstonechurch.org to RSVP for a weekend service time on Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Well, good morning. I, uh, I miss being able to see everybody's face and kind of tracking because I don't know if you're listening to me or ignoring me or falling asleep. So uh, if I'm losing you this morning, just wave your hand. That would help a lot, you know. Okay. <laughs> so glad to be here this morning. It's fun. A number of years ago, there was a uh, lady in our church who I really respected and, and liked who... Uh, had visions and dreams and words of knowledge, and at times she would say God had spoken to her. So at times she'd come to me and, uh, with, with something, and I always tried to listen and be discerning uh, um, as to, to how valid it was. One time she came to me and, and she said, Nick, I, God has spoken to me, and he's told me we need to put a... a, a painting of Jesus on our stage as kind of a backdrop for, for our worship. And um, I said, oh, okay, well, well um, I, I, I just need to see the painting before we, we, we do that. Um, so she got a picture of the painting, and it was a, a nine-foot-tall painting of Jesus. And this Jesus had flowing hair and just a beautiful face and blue eyes. And he was very, very white, although tan. And he looked like an Adonis, you know, muscle builder's body. And I, I thought, you know, I've seen this image before. In fact, at the grocery store, it's on every romance novel you, you, you look at. And I told her, I said, um, I'm sorry, there is no way we are putting that on the stage as a backdrop for, for, for our worship. And she says, but God's spoken. And I said, well, he may have spoken to you, but he hasn't spoken to me. And I'm pretty doggone sure Jesus didn't look anything like that. Jesus was a Middle Eastern Jew, probably dark-complected, probably didn't have blue eyes, probably had short hair, not long-flowing hair, um, probably muscular, but not a bodybuilder's body. And she was very offended and I said, look, I, I'm absolutely certain Jesus wasn't particularly attractive. And she, she could, was indignant. I said, well, look, look at Isaiah 53. This is a prophecy about Jesus. This is what the text says. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He wasn't a good-looking Adonis. It's just not who Jesus was. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, 
and we held him in low esteem. Got me thinking, if we can be that off target with Jesus' physical appearance, how far off can we be with everything else about Jesus? And, and you know, if you, you look at our culture, it's easy to find all kinds of what I would call false Jesuses. I, in fact, I put together a list of them. I took some from other sources and people I've talked to and some I just observed. Here, here's my list of, of false Jesuses out there in our culture. There is the conservative, Republican, white American, suburban Jesus. There is the liberal, Democrat, ethnic, urban Jesus. There is the open-minded, white elitist, academic Jesus. There is the revolutionary, anti-establishment, liberation-seeking Jesus. There is Jesus is my boyfriend Jesus. There is the anemic, only a great man and teacher Jesus. There is the therapist who solves all my problems, Jesus. There is the, the sentimental, good for Christmas specials and greeting card, makes me feel good, Jesus, who typically only shows up as a baby. There is the hates organized religion, churches, pastors, and doctrine, Jesus. There is the new age self-realized guru, Jesus. There is the, the Jesus is the Old Testament God after therapy, Jesus. There is the legend, not even sure he ever existed, figment of our imagination, Jesus. There is the good example, just loves everyone, only human Jesus. And there's the demonic, empowered, messianic, pretender Jesus that we see put forward in today's story. I mean, you begin thinking about it, and it makes you wonder who Jesus really is. What is he? What is he really like? Who is he? We're in a series called Love This Book. We've been going through the whole Bible in the course of a year. We have come to the New Testament. And right now we're focused in on the Gospels and we're wrestling with that question. Who is Jesus? You know, Jesus is the Messiah. So we've been looking at different aspects uh, of him. Um, this morning we come to a passage that hopefully will give us a little more clarity about the identity and characteristic uh, uh, of, of Jesus and answer that question for us. Um, the, the thing is, we think we know who Jesus is and what he's like. But if I could challenge us a little bit, I'd like to suggest maybe we shouldn't be so certain. After all, in this passage, it is the religious conservatives, the ones who knew their Bible well, the people who were the most committed get him totally wrong. In other words, they're people like us, and they, they miss the mark. So I want us to, to, to wrestle a little this morning and, and measure our conception of who Jesus is up against what Matthew presents to us. Now, I want you to understand that this is a fundamentally important question, um, and I'll tell you why. The reason is, if we get Jesus wrong, we will unintentionally end up committing idolatry. You go, how is that? 
Well, let me explain. You know, oftentimes when we think of idolatry in our culture, we think of us taking something in our lives and making it too important, our work, money, relationships, sex, whatever, and that becomes an idol. And honestly, from a biblical perspective, those aren't idols. They may be obsessions, they may be misplaced priorities, they may be misplaced loves, but they're not idols. If you go into the Old Testament, uh, what you discover there is that there's two kinds of idolatry. One kind is when you are actually worshiping another deity, uh, um, Baal um, would be one of the, them. There's a whole bunch, and, and sometimes they would be represented by uh, a wood idol, an asterisk, or, or a golden statue, uh, Malak. That, but people believed that there was actual a supernatural deity behind those little objects that they were worshiping. They were giving their allegiance to another being other than God. And that was condemned as idolatry, and that makes sense. It's explicit idolatry. But you also discover in the Old Testament there's a, a much more subtle, and because of that, I think, more dangerous idolatry. And it was when they would take Yahweh and distort him and make him into something he's not and worship that creation of their own making. You see this in the book of Amos. There, the Jewish people are going to the temple, they're offering their worship, they're giving their tithes, they're doing their thank offerings, but, but Amos comes and tells them, hey, prepare to meet your God. You think you're in communion with God, but you're not. Because the God you're worshiping is not the true God because you've distorted him so much. You made him into something that he's not. And that's idolatry. And that's the kind of idolatry we face when we get Jesus wrong. Because unintentionally, we make him into something that he's not. And, and typically, when, when we do that, we end up making him a lot like us. We kind of stuff him into our skin and we end up making a Jesus of our own creation. And we think that, that Jesus is a lot like us, that he thinks like us, that he views the world like us, that he values what we value, that his perspective would be our perspective. And the truth of the matter is probably not. We have a tendency to, to make Jesus benign and nice and presentable and palatable. But I'm not sure Jesus was any of those things. Uh, Jesus was the kind of person that, that, that when you met him, challenged you and, and made you wrestle and irritated you and uh, enamored you. But, but he wasn't benign. And, and he wasn't like us. I mean, he, he, he was always confronting and trying to transform and bring change and transformation of the heart. You know, a few years ago, people were wearing those what would Jesus do bracelets, WWJD. And they said, oh, that's, this is really cool and thought it as something new. It actually comes from the 1800s. There was a book by Charles Sheldon called In His Steps, What Would Jesus Do? And it was really popular back in the 1800s. That, that notion of what would Jesus do, that question was revived in the 90s and then came again in those bracelets. Great question, what would Jesus do? But it's only a great question if you know what would Jesus do. And if you get Jesus wrong, then what would Jesus do? What you think he would do is not what he would do. In other words, you have to be right on about who Jesus is for that question to have much power in your life.
So I want us to wrestle this morning a little bit, measure our conception of Jesus up to the reality that we meet in this story. Matthew, the book we're in, we're going to look at chapter 12, has been wrestling with this question. He's trying to explain to people the identity of Jesus. And back in chapter 11, John the Baptist is in jail. And John is wondering the same thing. He's questioning who Jesus really is. So he sends some of his disciples to talk to Jesus and they're to ask Jesus, are you the one we've been waiting for? In other words, are you the Messiah? Are you the one we've been expecting? Are you the one that all the prophecies in the Old Testament are about? Are you the guy? And Jesus tells John's disciples, go back to John and tell him what you see. And what did they see? The lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear. The gospel is preached to the poor, and the dead are raised. And Jesus is alluding to an Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah, and it's Jesus' way of saying, yeah, I'm the guy. I'm the one. Um, And then in the rest of the uh, chapter 11, Matthew kind of lays out how Jesus has been working miracles in the natural realm, and it's very obvious that he's, he's Lord of creation, Lord of the natural world. And then we get to, to chapter 12, and uh, Matthew is kind of going to help us understand more about the nature and identity of Jesus in chapter 12. Let's look at verse 22. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. So his blindness and muteness wasn't because of disease in the natural world. This this man is demon-possessed. There's a spiritual entity that exists outside of himself that has entered into him and is causing these symptoms of blindness and muteness, uh, the spiritual entity. And Jesus comes along and heals him. In other words, he casts out the demon. This is a classic power encounter between evil, the powers of evil, and the powers of good. And and Jesus is the one wielding the powers of good against the powers of evil. And in this power encounter, the evil is, is defeated, defeated. And the reaction of the people is they're absolutely astonished. The only time this word is used in, the, in, in Matthew, in other words, they're blown away. They can't believe what they just saw, what just happened. Because they understood this was demon possession. This was something that they couldn't control or understand completely or have any power against. But Jesus did. So their response is, could this be the son of David? And why would you ask that? Well, the son of David was a question about Jesus being the Messiah. In other words, the Messiah had to be in the lineage of David. So when they ask, is this the son of David? They're asking, is this the guy? Is this the one we've been waiting for? Is this the guy that the Old Testament prophesied? Is this the one that's going to make everything right? Could it be? Could it be? And that's a key question. I think Matthew is making the point here I mean, in 11, he made the point that Jesus is Lord over the natural world. Here, he's making the point that Jesus is the Lord over the unseen world, the cosmic world. When I was studying this, I I thought to myself, you know, if I really believe that Jesus is who he says he is and who he's 
portrayed to be, that he's the Lord of the natural world and the cosmic world, then what problem is it in my life that I think he can't manage? <laughs> I was laughing at myself. And I, I get so wrapped up and worried about what's going on in my life, thinking, oh my gosh, what is going to happen? What's going to... If I really believe that Jesus is who he is, if he's Lord of the natural world and can make the blind see and raise the dead, and he's Lord of the cosmic world and can cast out the demons and control them, then what problem is it that he can't manage in my life? <laughs> I just thought, uh, my problem is not my problem. My problem is my lack of faith. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, then I have nothing to worry about. I just need to trust him more. Well, the religious leaders have an alternative explanation, right? But when the Pharisees, that was the, the leaders of the religious party of that day, they were very conservative, studied the scripture, very religious, very committed. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Beelzebul was a name they gave. The, the word literally means Lord of the Upper Reaches. And the Jews believe that's where the demons resided. So he's saying, uh, um, you know, Jesus is casting out this demon, not by the power of God, but he's casting the demon out by the power of Satan. One, one alternative translation of this, well, it's actually a different word in one, one, one of the text uh, uh, has Lord of the Flies. If you ever were, wonder where that title comes from of the book, Lord of the Flies. And it was a parody that the Jews used to talk about Satan. Yeah, he's Lord, but what he is Lord of is the flies. That's all he can really, really control. But, but they're saying that, that Jesus is, is not using the power of God to cast out this demon, but he's in cahoots with Satan and the devil, and that's why he can do this. And it's kind of an absurd alternative explanation. And it makes you wonder, why did they find Jesus so difficult to accept. Why are they the ones that rejected him so strong? I mean, if anybody should have gotten Jesus, it was these, these religious leaders, right? They understood the scriptures. They, they were very committed in, in terms of how they lived. They were very religious. I mean, they actually were trying to do what God wanted them to do. You would have thought these were the people who would be the very first to embrace Jesus and that they weren't. And that's scary because these people are the most like us. And it causes you to pause. Why wouldn't they accept Jesus? I think there's a couple of reasons. One, I think Jesus did not meet their expectations. Right? What did they expect? They expected a Messiah to come. And what they really wanted was a political Messiah. They wanted uh, 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 someone to come on the scene who would cast out the Romans, right? They were living under Roman law. They wanted the Romans gone. They wanted this Messiah to come cast out the Romans and give them political freedom. And that's what they were hoping for, and that's what they expected. And Jesus didn't seem to care much about that at all. He was about a different kind of revolution, a revolution in their hearts. And Jesus wasn't meeting expectations. 
I think sometimes that happens to us. We have certain expectations of how Jesus should perform and what he should do. And quite honestly, Jesus acts on his own agenda, not our agenda. <laughs> and we get disenamored because he's not what we want. But Jesus never said he was going to be what we want. So he didn't meet expectations. I think the second reason they rejected him is they didn't want to meet his expectations of them. In other words, Jesus was coming and saying, look, I want to bring about a, a, a revolution, not on the political sphere so much. I want to bring a revolution in your hearts. I want to transform you. I, I, I'm not really so concerned about your religious ritual and simply your external obedience. I want to change you on the inside, change your motives and change your attitudes and, and change your values and change what's important to you. I want, I want a revolution inside you. And as a result of that revolution, I want you to be people who, who, who care not just about yours and your tribe and yourself. I, I want you to be people of compassion and love. And he was calling them to, to love people that they typically did not want to love. Sinners and Gentiles and Samaritans and the marginalized and the oppressed and the poor and the widow and the orphan and the foreigner and the enemy. And they said, no, I don't want anything to do with this. I don't want to love those people. They're not, they're not my kind. You see, they wanted it to be all about them, and Jesus wanted it to be all about others. And they didn't like that. Because if Jesus brought this revolution, it would threaten everything they had, their power, their status, their prestige. It would have turned the world upside down and the Last would have become first, and the first would have become last, and they wanted none of that. Now, folks, don't miss the reality that Jesus is radical. I, I mean, if he's not grading against your values and the way you think and your perspective and changing you and calling you to do things that you don't feel comfortable doing and love people you don't necessarily want to love, if he's not... Uh, molding you into something different and transforming you, then maybe the Jesus you're, you're embracing isn't the real thing. If your Jesus just makes you comfortable and he's very nice and very benign, you know, Jesus isn't about making you nice. He wants to make you holy and those two things are different. They're very different. Anyway, Jesus responds. He has a rebuttal to their alternative explanation. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How can then this kingdom stand? He says, your, your explanation is kind of foolish. You know, if I'm driving the demon out by the power of Satan, then Satan's kingdom is divided and it can't stand. If I drive out demons by Beelzebub, who do your people drive them out by? Must be the same. And they don't want to say, they'll admit to that. So then they'll be your judges. But notice this next line. But if it is by the spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Well, what's that mean? What Jesus is saying, look, if I'm the alternative king, 
if Satan is the prince and the power of the air and I come in and I'm more powerful than him, then that means the alternative kingdom, kingdom means the rule and reign and power and authority. If I come and I can cast out his demons, that means suddenly that the kingdom has arrived, that the kingdom The rule and reign of Jesus has broken into this world, into the domain of Satan, and is setting up shop. Craig Blomberg, New Testament scholar, writes this about verse 28. He says, it's arguably the single most important teaching of Jesus on the present aspect of the kingdom. Now, that is not just a fine point of theology. Uh, This notion of the kingdom being present has formed everything we do at Waterstone. If you're around here very long, you know that our mission has always been centered on the kingdom. We want to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God. Why? Because we believe it's present. In fact, we believe that when we become followers of Jesus, we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God, kingdom of Christ. That, that, that we have switched allegiance from Beelzebul, Satan. Now our allegiance is to Jesus. He now is our king. And we are to live out as people of his kingdom. That means we're to go out into the culture and have a kingdom impact, proclaiming the reality of Jesus and demonstrating his compassion and love. And that becomes transformative. And that's what it means to live the Christian life. So this notion that the kingdom is present is absolutely critical for us to understand our own identity as kingdom subjects and our own calling in life, what we're to be about in terms of proclaiming and demonstrating the reality of Jesus' authority and rule on this earth. It means we become a counterculture of compassion and holiness and grace that grates against the world around us. But that's fundamental to our identity as followers of Jesus. It's critically important. Now, Jesus clarifies this with a little analogy in verse 30. He says, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man then he can plunder his house. Jesus is saying, look, I'm not, I'm not an agent of Satan. I'm just the opposite. I'm, I'm the king of the cosmic realm and I've broken into Satan's domain and I've tied him up. I've constrained him. And you see this more blatantly when Jesus goes to the cross because on the cross, not only does Jesus defeat sin and render us forgiven, but he defeats death and he defeats evil and he defeats Satan. And Satan is, is defeated on the cross. I think about that for a moment. Because as you think about it, you say, well, you know, Nick, it doesn't really feel like that. I mean, have you been paying attention to 2020? What's going on? It, 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 it. If Satan's defeated, then how do you explain this last year? I mean, evil looks like it's running rampant, chaos. and uh, How in the world can you even begin to suggest that, that Satan is bound, that Satan is defeated? It, it seems like he is alive and well on planet Earth. It's a good question. It's a good question. Let me, I want to answer it by reading to you a, a, a little story essay it comes from 
Christianity Today, a number of years ago, written by Carolyn Ahrens, it's entitled Satan's Gone or a Lesson from a Headless Snake. Listen in with me, would you? As a kid, I loved Mission Sundays when missionaries on furlough brought special reports in place of a sermon. There is one visit I've never forgotten. The missionaries are a married couple stationed in what appeared to be a particularly steamy jungle. I'm sure they gave a full report on churches planted or commitments made or translations begun. I don't remember much of that. What has always stayed with me is the story they shared about a snake. One day they told us an enormous snake, much longer than a man, slithered its way right through their front door and into their kitchen of their simple home. Terrified, they ran outside and they searched frantically for a local who might know what to do. A machete-wielding neighbor came to the rescue, calmly marched into their house and decapitated the snake with one clean chop. The neighbor reemerged triumphant and assured the missionaries that the reptile had been defeated. But there was a catch. He warned it was going to take a while for the snake to realize it's dead. A snake's neurology and blood flow are such that if that it can take considerable time for it to stop moving even after decapitation. And for the next several hours, the missionaries were forced to wait outside while the snake thrashed about, smashing furniture and flailing against the walls and windows, wrecking havoc until its body finally understood that it no longer had a head. Sweating in the heat, they had felt frustrated and a little sickened, but also grateful that the snake's rampage wouldn't last forever. And at some point in their waiting, they told us they had a mutual epiphany. I leaned in with the rest of the congregation, queasy, fascinated. Do you see it? Asked the husband. Satan is a lot like that big old snake. He's already been defeated. It just doesn't, he just doesn't know it yet. In the meantime, he's going to do some damage, but never forget that he's a goner. She writes, the story haunts me because I have come to believe it is an accurate picture of the universe. We are in the thrashing time, a season characterized by our pervasive capacity to do violence to each other and ourselves. And the temptation is to despair. We have to remember, though, that it won't last forever. Jesus has already crushed the serpent's head. Folks, God and Satan are not equal foes locked in mortal combat. Uh, to be certain, there is a measurable amount of evil in our world, but compared with God's love and God's power, all the evil in the universe doesn't even cover the head of a pin. Jesus wins, and Satan does not stand a chance, and that is guaranteed. So in the face of evil, we don't live with grim resignation, but rather with hopeful defiance. We fight evil and oppression and we work for justice because we are members of an alternative kingdom living in the midst of this world. 
That's what we work for. So, and we have this hope. The God who lives in us is greater by far than the dead snake thrashing around in our world. Amen. Well, Jesus goes on. Having made his point that he really is the cosmic king and he's inaugurated his kingdom, he calls for a decision. Look what he says. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. This is what people call the unpardonable sin. What's going on here? Jesus is, he, he's calling them to decision. He's saying, look, you, you either got to be for me or you got to be against me, but, but, but there is no neutral ground. It's either for or against. No, no fence sitting when it comes to Jesus. And he's saying, look, it, it's a dangerous thing to be against him. Because that's when you're committing the unpardonable sin. That's when you're guilty of blasphemy of the Spirit, ultimately. One commentator writes this. He says, on the surface, the sense is, is pretty clear what blasphemy of the Spirit is. It's attributing to Satan what is accomplished by the power of God on the surface. But there's something deeper going on here. And I think uh, Craig Blomberg, again, captures it when he says that the blasphemy of the Spirit is the flagrant, willful, and persistent rejection of God and His commands. And if you look at the context, that's what the Pharisees are doing. They're, they're rejecting Jesus persistently, defiantly, attributing Him, him to the devil. They're, reject, they're, they're saying, we're against you. And Jesus is saying, look, if that's where you're going to end up, that's the one thing you ultimately cannot do. That's the one thing that cannot be forgiven. Every other sin can be forgiven, but that. Ultimately, rejecting Jesus is incredibly spiritually dangerous. We can go so wrapped up into the details of this story that we miss the point. So I want to make it very explicit here. here. Here's what Matthew is trying to tell us about who Jesus is. Jesus is the cosmic king who has defeated Satan and has inaugurated his kingdom, his rule and reign. And we must choose for or against him. That's the point. Jesus is the cosmic king. That's who Jesus is. Now, let me give you two points of application. First, make sure you get Jesus right. Um, if you think you have Jesus all figured out, be careful. <laughs> Just be a bit careful. Because you know what we do? We have this tendency to make Jesus too small, right? We, we see Jesus as our, our, our personal Savior. 
And Jesus is our personal Savior. He does save us, and, and you can have a personal relationship with him, and all that's true. But that's just a tiny bit of Jesus is. He's not simply your personal Savior. He's the cosmic king of the world. That's who Jesus is. We think the gospel is this notion that Jesus can be my Savior, and I get to go to heaven. True, but it's not about you escaping out of here. You actually enter into his kingdom, and his kingdom is coming back, and you get to be part of it. In other words, it's not something small. If Jesus is the cosmic king, then we've entered into something huge and amazing and fantastic because now we are people of the king and followers of the king and living in his kingdom and living out his agenda. What a calling. What an exciting way to live. That's something far more than simply, he's my personal savior and I get to go to heaven. Okay, but you're missing it. That's, us, that's too small. We're invited to something big and cosmic and incredible and meaningful and significant, something you can give your life to, and it'll never get boring. Ever. He is cosmic. And we're invited into history. I like what Russell Moore writes. He says, for too long we've called unbelievers to invite Jesus into your life. Jesus doesn't want to be in your life. Your life's a wreck. <laughs> Jesus calls you into his life and his kingdom and his life and his kingdom isn't boring or purposeless or static. It's wild and exhilarating and unpredictable. For God's sake, don't make Jesus tiny. Make him huge. Really. He's so much, he is your personal savior, but he is so much more. So much more. Second, make sure you get Jesus right and go all in. By the way, to make sure you get Jesus right, one of the things you can do, you know, we're in this series, love this book, why don't you just sit down and read the Gospels and, and, and just, just see who Jesus is. I mean, it'll outstand you. Uh, it'll astound you. Uh, I mean, if you just, just, I mean, you'll find him troubling and irritating and uh, sometimes comforting and sometimes you'll like him and sometimes you won't, but you'll get a, this great picture of who Jesus is just by reading the Gospels. Okay? Yeah, but go all in. And some of you here this morning are checking Jesus out, and that's awesome. Take your time, figure it out. Listen to who he claims to be. Figure out if that's who you believe him to be. I mean, it, that's okay. But understand this. There is going to come a moment where you have to decide who you're going to give your allegiance to. At some point, you have to go all in. We live in a world of partial commitments and hedged bets and associated memberships. We always want to... to to feel part of the game, but want the safety of the sidelines. We always want uh, to keep our options open. That's why people, you know, live together instead of get married because they don't, they don't want to totally commit. You can't do that with Jesus. Either you're all in ultimately or not at all. I, I like this quote from Wilbur Reese. 
It's old, but I keep coming back to it because it, it strikes a chord with me. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or pick beads with a migrant worker. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I'd like to buy just $3 worth of God please. Look, folks, Jesus doesn't want to be an add-on to your life. <laughs> you don't make, take the cosmic king, the lord of the natural world and the unseen world, the, the, the one in charge of it all, and just make him a nice addition to your life. You, you just don't do that. You, you just don't make him a nice little part of your story that you can go to when you're in trouble. No, it's not about that. He's the king of it all. You don't invite him into your life. You become part of his story. Total commitment. All in. You've got to decide on which side you're on. Are you for him? Or are you against him? And that decision has eternal consequences. Jesus is the cosmic king who's defeated Satan and inaugurated his kingdom. Are you going to follow him with your whole heart and give him your allegiance or not? I want to end this morning by listening to uh, a few pieces from an incredibly great sermon given by Dr. Lockridge uh, back in the 1970s, it is entitled, That's My King. What it does is it just gives you a great summary and gives us a great reminder of who Jesus really is. Please listen and watch. I wonder if you know him. Don't try to mislead me. Do you know my king? The Bible says he's a king of the Jews. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. Now that's my king. Well, no barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his soulless supply. Well, he's enduringly strong. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. And he's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's preeminent. Well, he's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good. He's the only one able to supply all of our needs simultaneously. He's available for the tempted and the tried. 
He sympathizes and he saves. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? Do you know my king? Well, my king is a king of knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a gateway of glory. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Do you know him? He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. I'm come to tell you, the heavens of heaven cannot contain him, let alone a man explain him. You can't get him out of your mouth. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. He always has been, and he always will be. I'm talking about he had no predecessor, and he'll have no successor. There was nobody before him, and there'll be nobody after him. You can't him, keep him, and he's not going to resign. That's my king. Yeah. Do you know him? He's the master of the mighty. He's the captain of the populace. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislators. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of governors. He's the prince of princes. He's the king of kings. And he's the lord of lords. That's my king. Yeah.